One of the things that amazes you about the Lord Jesus when you read his words in the Gospels is how he unreservedly referred to the book of Genesis and other stories in Hebrew Scripture that are considered bizarre to the mind of modern man. For example, when he was questioned about divorce in Matthew 19, he responded by saying, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? Jesus had no hesitation quoting from the creation account in Genesis to buttress his, his point. He had no hesitation affirming the creation account. No hesitation affirming the historicity of Adam and Eve as real people. Not only that, it is clear that he believed all the stories of Genesis and all the Old Testament. In Luke 10, 18, he referred to Satan's fall from heaven. In Matthew 24, 37, he referred to Noah and the ark. In Matthew 10, 15, he referred to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. In Luke 17, 32, he referred to Lot's wife being turned into a pillar of salt. In Matthew 12, 40, he referred to Jonah in the belly of the great fish. And that's just a sampling. Jesus believed the stories of the Old Testament, including the book of Genesis. So here's the point. Don't say you believe in Jesus, but you don't believe in the creation account in the book of Genesis. Jesus believed all the events recorded in Hebrew Scripture, and he didn't view them as fairy tales or myths or anything like that. He took them as accurate historical accounts. I say that so that no one will fall into the trap of thinking that it's good to believe in Jesus, but you don't need to believe in the rest of the Bible, especially the parts that seem to run contrary to a modern understanding of science. Beloved, you don't have the option of embracing such a view. You cannot believe in Jesus and the New Testament without also accepting the stories in the Old Testament. The two are indivisibly intertwined. If you throw out the Old Testament as scientifically unsophisticated or antiquated, you have to throw out Jesus and the New Testament as untrustworthy because Jesus and the other authors of the New Testament repeatedly quoted from the Old Testament stories as historical fact. When Jesus was asked a question, he didn't hesitate to say, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? Jesus affirmed the creation account in the book of Genesis. He did the same thing in Mark 13, 19, when he was teaching on a future event that will come upon this earth. He said, For in those days there will be tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the creation which God created. So how did this universe get here? According to Jesus, if you believe him, God created it. And a part of that work was the making of Adam and Eve. This world did not come about through the process of evolution, nor did the human race. If you believe that it did, you cannot believe in Jesus and be consistent. To be consistent, you have to say that either Jesus did not know what he was talking about when he affirmed the creation of the universe and of mankind, or, here's the other option, he did know that none of this was true, but he just chose to continue the deception. 
Those are really the only two options you have. The Word of God unequivocally teaches that this universe, including the human race, did not come about as the result of an evolutionary process that took place over millions or billions of years. According to Genesis 1, God created this universe, including mankind, over a six-day period. That's all the time he took to do what he wanted to accomplish. God created the matter and substance of this universe, then he fashioned it or made it into an orderly universe and world. And he chose to do it over a six-day period. Now, he could have done it in a second. Obviously, he's God. He could have done it in an hour, in a day, or in a month. But he chose to do it over a six-day period for, among other things, purposes related to his design pattern for 24-hour days, seven-day weeks, etc. I would also add this. He could have chosen to do the work of creation over a period of six years, six decades, six millennia, six billion years, had he purposed to do it that way. But that's not how he chose to do it. And that is why Scripture doesn't present the creation and making account that way. Jesus and the other authors of the New Testament did not hesitate to stand by and affirm the stories of Hebrew Scripture, even the ones that seem unsophisticated to the mind of modern man. We see an example of that in the text to which we come this morning. Please turn with me in your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 3, over near the end of the New Testament. 2 Peter chapter 3, please follow along as I read verses 1 through 7, though we've already covered verses 1 through 3, but to get a running start, we'll begin reading back in verse 1. Peter says in 2 Peter 3, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. As we have seen for several weeks now, the Apostle Peter was compelled in his heart and guided by the Holy Spirit of God to warn us about false teachers within Christianity. He gives a blistering denunciation of false teachers in chapter 2 using some of the strongest words in all of Scripture. As you read those strong words, don't forget that what Peter wrote was directed by the Holy Spirit of God. So it would be completely accurate to say that chapter 2 of this letter is just as much the Holy Spirit's denunciation of false teachers as it is Peter's denunciation of false teachers. But the denouncement doesn't end with chapter 2 because Peter continues to warn us here in this third chapter of his letter. 
He tells us in verse 3 that scoffers will come in the last days. When we read that statement, it is easy for us to say something like this. Wow, there sure are a lot of scoffers today. Just look at all the people in the media. Look at all the university professors who attack Christianity. Look at all the scientists who make fun of Christianity. Peter was right that scoffers will come in the last days. It's our tendency to go that direction in our thinking. Our tendency is to assume that Peter is talking about secular people who scoff at Christianity. But listen, beloved, that is not Peter's primary focus. His words do not exclude such people. But his primary focus is on scoffers within Christianity, not scoffers outside of Christianity. Now, when I say that Peter is talking about scoffers within Christianity, I'm not suggesting that he has Christians in mind. He is talking about people who pose as Christians or present themselves as Christians or see themselves as Christians or view themselves as Christians. But they are people who refuse to submit themselves and their views to the absolute authority of Scripture. Back in chapter 2, verse 10, Peter said that they despise authority. That may be the most fundamental character trait of false teachers within Christianity. They despise authority. That is, they refuse to submit themselves and their beliefs to the absolute authority of Scripture because they see themselves as the authority, or their education as their authority, or science as the authority, or their own rational minds as the authority. Therefore, they present themselves as Christians and see themselves as Christians, but they scoff at various beliefs of historic Christianity because they view some of those beliefs as archaic or unenlightened or uneducated or unscientific. Two such beliefs that Peter mentions here in our text are, one, supernatural creation, and two, supernatural consummation. Many people under the umbrella of Christianity deny Scripture's account of creation and deny that the world is going to end with the cataclysmic judgment of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Those two doctrines, as well as others, but those are the two Peter mentions here, those two doctrines are seen as antiquated or part of old-fashioned, uneducated Christianity according to some modern scholars under the umbrella of Christianity. These so-called scholars occupy the pulpits of some Christian churches. They teach in some Bible colleges and seminaries. They head up some denominations. They teach in Christian schools. They are the scoffers that Peter has in mind when he writes these words. He has in mind people under the umbrella of Christianity who scoff at divine truths that don't make sense to them or don't seem reasonable to them. Thus, it is often men and women who are considered scholarly or learned. As R.C. Sproul said in the quote I mentioned a few weeks ago, heresy is not usually the forte of the washerwoman. It is the occupation of the scholar and the theologian who are puffed up with knowledge and have no fear of God. These are the kinds of people Peter has in mind when he writes these words. 
He says in verse 3, scoffers will come in the last days. And then he says in verse 4, after he gives that little introduction, they will be saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. This is at the heart of what the scoffers often ridicule. They deny that the world is going to end with the cataclysmic judgment of the second coming of Jesus Christ. They accuse those of us who hold to that doctrine of being out of touch with reality and believing in a pie-in-the-sky religion. They say the world ought to be far more concerned about a nuclear holocaust than a supposed second coming of Christ in catastrophic judgment. They say we ought to be far more concerned about global warming than a supposed second coming of Christ in catastrophic judgment. They say we ought to pay far more attention to all the things we are doing to destroy our planet than a supposed second coming of Christ in catastrophic judgment. They say that uneducated Christians have for centuries preached a second coming but it hasn't happened even though it has been proclaimed for 2,000 years. Their attitude is often this. Come on, get real. All this talk about a second coming in judgment is just a scare tactic to try to, try to get people to convert. It's just a scare tactic to try to control and manipulate people. That doesn't work in an enlightened and educated society. That's often their attitude. Notice the argument that scoffers, that these scoffers put forth according to Peter's words here. He says, they will say, for since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were. If you want an official title to this argument, or an official title to this line of reasoning, it would be the word uniformitarianism. Uniformitarianism. The theory of uniformitarianism is the view that says that all natural phenomena have operated uniformly since the beginning of the earth. In other words, <clears throat> they may acknowledge that there was some kind of cataclysmic beginning to this universe, such as a Big Bang, but since that time, things have just unfolded slowly and gradually by never varying patterns and principles of evolution. Everything in the universe is stable, closed, fixed, and governed by never-varying patterns and principles of evolution. Nothing catastrophic has ever happened in the past, so nothing catastrophic will ever happen in the future. There will be no divine invasion, no supernatural judgment on mankind. Beloved, do you see how relevant and contemporary Peter's words are here? This is exactly what so many people believe in the 21st century. Now, we shouldn't be surprised when people in the world embrace such views. But what is so disturbing is how many professing Christians embrace such views and teach them as biblical truth. That was Peter's concern when he wrote these words. As I said a few moments ago, Peter is talking about people who present themselves as Christians see themselves as Christians. They view themselves as Christians, but they are people who refuse to submit themselves and their views to the absolute authority of Scripture. 
They believe it is an old-fashioned, outdated, uneducated, unenlightened perspective of Christianity to put so much emphasis and so much hope on a literal, bodily second coming of Christ to the earth to bring worldwide judgment. As a result, when they hear us talking about the second coming and preaching about the second coming and eager to study the second coming, they scoff. Some scoff openly and some scoff inwardly, but the attitude is the same. They believe that brand of Christianity is a poor representation to the modern world of what Christianity really is. As I mentioned earlier, their attitude is along the lines of this. Get in touch with the modern world. People don't want to hear about some pie-in-the-sky religion that leads to an escapism mentality. There are pressing problems in this world today. And we have to change our message to meet that challenge. Our message has to address those issues. Don't point people to some supposed future escape called the second coming. So what does God's Word have to say about this issue? Here are some facts. Here are some statistics just to give you God's perspective on this. Prophecy occupies one-fifth of Scripture, and the second coming occupies one-third of that one-fifth. Of the 333 prophecies concerning Christ, only 109 of them were fulfilled in His first coming, leaving 224 yet to be fulfilled in His second coming. Of the 46 Old Testament prophets, 46 Old Testament prophets, less than 10 of them speak of events in Christ's first coming, while 36 of them speak of events connected with His second coming. There are a total of 1,527 Old Testament passages referring to the second coming. There are 7,959 verses in the New Testament, 7,959, 330 of which refer directly to the second coming. If you want to do the math, that's 1 out of 25. That's the ratio. Next to the subject of faith, the subject of the second coming is the most dominant subject in the New Testament. For every time the first coming is mentioned in the Bible, the second coming is mentioned, are you ready for this? Eight times. For every time the atonement is mentioned once, the second coming is mentioned twice. The Lord refers to His own return 21 times in the pages of the New Testament. And men and women are exhorted to be ready for the return of Jesus Christ over 50 times in Scripture. Over 50 times. The statistical evidence alone indicates how important God sees the second coming of His Son, Jesus Christ. The Bible is literally loaded with passages of Scripture that deal with the second coming of Christ. But scoffers think they know better than God, though they would never say it that way or admit it. They are willing to buy into the theory of uniformitarianism and the theory of evolution, but they aren't willing to buy into the scriptural teaching of the second coming of Christ. They claim to be Christians. They claim to be theists. But their worldview would be more accurately titled deist. A deist is someone who believes in God, 
but doesn't believe that God is involved in the affairs of man. A deist may or may not believe in a biblical view of creation, but if he does believe in creation, he doesn't believe that God is involved in this world any longer. It's as if the universe is a large clock that God got started in some way, and he, he, he took the effort to wind it up, but now the clock is out here in the universe simply ticking along and winding down on its own. God doesn't intervene. He isn't involved. God is absent. Thus, a deist thinks it is silly to suggest that God is going to step into time to judge this world by the second coming of Christ. After all, they say, that kind of thing has never happened in the past. So why should we believe it will happen in the future? Verse 5, Peter anticipating that says, For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth, standing out of water and in the water. Peter sets the record straight. To those who would say that God has never intervened in the past in a cataclysmic way, Peter responds by giving two examples of divine intervention in a profound way. Here in verse 5, Peter mentions creation, and in verse 6, he mentions the worldwide flood. He introduces these two examples by saying, For this they willfully forget. The ESV says, for they deliberately overlook this fact. The NIV says, but they deliberately forget. The NASB, New American Standard Bible, says it escapes their notice. However, Peter isn't implying that it's something that is accidental, that it just escapes them somehow. It escapes their notice because they don't want to hear it. They don't want to see it. It's an ostrich mentality, sticking your head in a hole in the ground because you don't want to see it. Those who claim that God is passive, or God doesn't intervene, or God doesn't act willfully, those who believe God doesn't act willfully forget what God did in creation. God moved in the emptiness of eternity past and brought the universe into existence. It wasn't a uniformitarianistic process or an evolutionary process. It was an instantaneous, explosive, six-day creation. That event alone proves that everything in this universe has not gone along in some slow, methodical, unwavering, evolutionary process. If you take the, the creation account in Genesis 1 seriously... If you take it at face value, if you take it for what it says, the entire universe came into being. It was formed in six 24-hour days. And how did God do that? Peter says here that the earth standing out of water and in the water. That's a very interesting phrase. What does Peter mean? Well, let me read you Genesis 1, 6 and 7. Those verses state, Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters... And let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. On day two of creation, God made the firmament, the expanse. The term firmament means extended surface. In the Genesis account, we are not told how God made the firmament. 
But many other scriptures refer back to that event and describe it as the stretching out of the heavens by God's hands. Several verses indicate that this act of God is one of the greatest feats of his work. The stretching out of the the spaces between the liquid masses of matter moves matter to the farthest regions of space. That's what Peter seems to be referring to here. Those who claim that God is passive, or God doesn't intervene, or God doesn't act, willfully forget what God did in creation. That's Peter's first example or illustration. His second one is verse 6. Notice the second one. He says, By which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. Peter's second example of God's intervention in a cataclysmic way is the example of the worldwide flood. Peter has just been speaking of the waters of creation, and it leads him right into this example of God's intervention in the universe. God destroyed the ancient world with a massive flood. The worldwide flood killed all the millions of people, and yes, it was millions. Analysis has been done on the population growth from Adam and Eve until the time of the flood, and many scholars believe that the the number would be very similar to life on planet Earth today in the billions. But even if you reduce it and say millions, the worldwide flood killed all the millions of people who were on the planet except for Noah's family of eight. Not only that, the flood radically altered many things about planet Earth and on planet Earth. And that is why those who try to study earth science without, without taking into account the results of the worldwide flood can never really interpret all the data correctly. If you hold to a uniformitarian view of life on planet earth, you will skew and misunderstand some of the data you see in earth science. Peter's point in bringing up these two illustrations is that it is clear that the world is not in a uniformitarian process. Those who dismiss the idea that the history of mankind will end with the second coming of Christ in judgment by saying that God doesn't intervene have chosen to forget about creation and the worldwide flood. Those two events alone says Peter, demonstrate that God is not passive. God has acted in monumental ways in the past. Thus, we have no reason to doubt what God has said in his word about his intention to step into this world again in the flaming second coming judgment of his son. The reason why God hasn't done something worldwide like that since the flood is because he is preserving this present world and waiting until the time is right for the second coming of his son in judgment. And so Peter adds verse 7. He says, But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition or destruction of ungodly men. This universe was created by the word of God. He spoke and it was. This universe is also preserved by the Word of God. He has stated His plan for this world, and nothing will happen to bring this world to an end until He has determined the time is right. 
God's word created this world. His word preserves this world. And his word will judge this world. The first time God judged and destroyed the entire world, it was by water. The next time God judges and destroys this world, it will be by fire. And that will be in connection with the second coming of his son. You know, when we, when we as Christians think about the second coming of Jesus Christ, we, th- we think about it as a good thing, right? I mean, we're excited about it. We're, we're eager for it. We think about it as a positive thing, and it certainly is that in many ways. However, the second coming of Jesus Christ to this earth is going to be a horrifying judgment for ungodly men and women. In fact, if you study all the judgments in the book of Revelation, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments, as horrific as they are, they do not compare to the ultimate judgment in the book of Revelation, which is the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth. That is the ultimate judgment in the book of Revelation. Let me show you this as we begin to wind down. Turn over with me to the book of Revelation so we can see what Peter is referring to here in his text in 2 Peter 3. Revelation chapter 19. We'll pick it up in verse 11. John says, Now I saw heaven opened, And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Don't miss that last phrase. He judges and makes war. That's why he's coming back. This, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory. And this time when he comes, he doesn't come as a baby in a manger. He doesn't come like the meek and humble servant riding into Jerusalem on a young, a young donkey. No, no. This time he comes on a white horse. And he comes to judge and make war. He comes on a white horse, a white stallion, because he's coming to conquer. Exodus 15.3 says, The Lord, and that's the, God's personal name, Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. This is, not, this is not how we usually think of the Lord Jesus. We usually think of him as a meek, humble, gentle Savior. And he certainly is that. But when he comes the second time, he will return as a warrior, a judge, a destroyer. Verse 12 continues the description. His eyes were like a flame of fire. That speaks of his penetrating judgment. His judgment will be perfectly righteous because with his eyes of fire, he is able to see everything perfectly. Not just the external, not just outside. He can see inside every person's heart, every person's thoughts, motives. His eyes are penetrating in their judgment. The verse continues, And on his head were many crowns. This speaks of his right to rule. That's why he's coming back. He's coming back to rule and reign on planet earth. He taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why would he teach us to pray that if he weren't going to do that? He is going to come back 
to reign on earth. The one who was given a crown of thorns when he came the first time will come back with a crown of glory. He'll come back to rule and reign on planet earth. Verse 12 continues the description. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. In case there was any questions in our, any question in our minds as to the identity of this person on the white horse, now we know for sure because he is called the Word of God. It's the same title that John, the author of this book, gave him in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. John 1.14, the Word became flesh, dwelt among us. We beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, clearly. He's wearing a robe dipped in blood. He has already waged war against sin, Satan, and death when He died on the cross. Now he returns to wage war on those who have refused his sacrificial death. Verse 14 says, And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule over them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. He created this universe with his word, so it would be a small task to destroy armies and rebels with his word. Beloved, if you stop and think about what John is describing here, this is a horrific description. Especially in the first century context where wine vats were a very common part of culture, this pictures the fact that God's wrath against sin is so great that people who reject Christ will, in a sense, be thrown into a judgment vat, like a wine vat, and Jesus will trample them and totally crush their life out of them. That's not how we think of Jesus. This doesn't fit our, our view of him. But this is the way he's described in his second coming. Verse 16, he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings, Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. This is remarkable. An angel invites birds to come to the carnage. Jesus alluded to this feast in his Olivet Discourse, which is recorded in Matthew 24 and 25. In Matthew 24, 27 through 28, he said this, For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now listen to this. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Jesus connected this feast of carnage with his second coming. We're we're familiar with the phrase, as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. But we stop there. Jesus didn't stop there. His very next statement was, for where the carcass is there, the eagles will be gathered together. In other words, when I come, there's going to be a massive feast of carnage. The birds will partake in it. 
Jesus connected this feast of carnage with his second coming. Verse 19, and I saw the beast. That's the individual we usually refer to as the Antichrist. I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So the armies of the world are gathered for a battle, but it's not really going to be a battle. It's going to be a supper. The great battle of God is going to be the great supper of God because of all the carnage. Verse 20 says, Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from his mouth from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and watch this and all the birds were filled with their flesh notice there's not even a battle it will all be over in an instance with an, with a with the utterance of a simple word from the mouth of the Lord Jesus all the rebels gathered for this battle will be slain and the birds will begin to consume their bodies. And beloved, this is the way, if you believe God, this is the way the history of mankind is going to end. And Peter in our text says that there will be scoffers denying this, denying that this is the way history is going to end. Instead, they'll come up with their own explanations, their own views, but this is what God says. If we believe what he says, this is the way the history of mankind will end. Are you ready for the end? Ready to step into eternity? Not if you don't know Christ. If you don't know Christ, you're not ready for eternity. You're not ready for the end. Let's bow together as we close. As we bow together in closing this morning, take just a few minutes, please, to Reflect on what you have seen from God's Word this morning, what you have heard from God's Word this morning. Scripture tells us in so many places, so many ways, so many times, that God's plan for this world is to consummate with the second coming of His Son, Jesus Christ, to the earth. Finally, Finally, the prayer of God's people down through the centuries, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Finally, that prayer will be answered. And so for us who know Christ, it will be a sweet occasion because the kingdom will come, the king will be honored, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. But for those who have refused the king, those who have rejected him, those who have rebelled against him, it will be a horrendous judgment. So all of humanity is, in, is divided into those two camps. You here this morning are in one of those two camps. You're either in the camp of those who know and love Christ and you're ready for eternity, you're ready for the second coming, or you don't know Christ and you're not ready for the second coming. I urge you with all that's in me, Surrender your heart to Christ. Surrender your life to Christ. Don't resist Him. It's futile. It's foolish. Surrender your will. Receive Jesus Christ 
this very moment as your Lord and Savior. Right there where you are seated in the quietness of your own heart, ask Jesus Christ to forgive your sins, to be your king. I promise you, if you pray such a prayer with humility in a repentant heart, contrite heart, the Lord will hear, the Lord will answer, the Lord will make you one of his own. Father, as we've considered this text this morning from 2 Peter 3 and then also in Revelation 19, it's very clear to us what your word has to say about the future. That whatever happens on planet Earth in the next year, five years, ten years, fifty years, however long it is, we know how the story is going to end. One day the Lord Jesus Christ will descend from heaven. One day he will come back as King of kings and Lord of lords. He will come back to rule and to reign. He will come back in the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. This is clearly what your word teaches. May we embrace it, believe it, and not be moved away from it, regardless of what people say, whether it be people in secular society or people even in the name of Christianity, under the umbrella of Christianity. May we hold to what your word teaches, that you have a plan for this planet. You have a plan for this world. And it revolves around your son, Jesus Christ. So we pray, those of us who know him and love him, we pray for anyone around us this morning, anyone here in our midst who doesn't know and love the Lord Jesus. May your Holy Spirit draw that man or woman, young person, whoever it is, to surrender to Jesus Christ, to come to know him, love him, live for him, and follow him. We pray these things in his precious and matchless name. Amen.